Hello and welcome. You're listening to Perspectives on Progress, a special edition of Capital Cast, a regular podcast of Capital News Illinois. I'm Raymond Troncoso. As the coronavirus pandemic continues to spread throughout the United States, Latino and African American communities have been disproportionately impacted by the virus nationwide. To discuss the nature of these disparities, where they come from, why they exist, and how, if possible, they can be fixed, we spoke with Jordan Powell. Powell is president and CEO of the Illinois Primary Healthcare Association, or IPHCA, a nonprofit trade association for community health centers throughout the state. This podcast contains excerpts of our conversation. In late July, the American Heart Association conducted a media briefing on how COVID-19 was disproportionately impacting Latino children. Here's Dr. Amalie Ramirez from that briefing. Um, We are seeing that even though we represent 18% of the U.S. population, more than 30% of all U.S. coronavirus cases in adults uh, have been attributed to, uh, uh, have been caused in our Latino population. And more than 50% of all U.S. coronavirus cases have impacted our Latino children between the ages of zero and 17. And our community is more than three times as likely as non-Hispanic whites to be infected by, uh, by this virus. According to an August 7th report by the CDC on hospitalizations due to COVID-19, Latino children make up 46% of hospitalizations under 18, while non-Hispanic Black children make up 30%. When tracking deaths, as of August 13th, the CDC reports that non-Hispanic Black Americans made up nearly 20% of COVID cases and over 22% of COVID deaths, despite making up around 13% of the U.S. population. I asked Powell, does the data show similar disparities in Illinois? So our data uh, that we have from the Illinois Department of Public Health shows that while African-Americans make up just 15% of Illinois' population, they have suffered 28% of coronavirus deaths. And so your statistic on Latinos was focused on children, but this is overall. And our data on Latinos uh, from the Illinois Department of Public Health shows that while Uh, They only make up 17% of Illinois' population. They represent 33% of positive cases and 21% of COVID-related deaths. So obviously, it's clear that African Americans and Latinos are being disproportionately um, impacted by the virus. Well, why is that? What causes such a gap? So the connection that I make is that... um, You know, African-Americans and Latinos are more likely to suffer from other underlying conditions as a result of socioeconomic factors and a lack of health care access. So, for example, if you're African-American, you're more likely to have chronic conditions like asthma, diabetes, hypertension, even cancer. So when you combine those already um, underlying conditions that you're more likely to have as an as an African American with a virus and a pandemic like coronavirus, and then your outcomes are going to be uh, going to be worse. And the same could be said for uh, Latinos. You know, there's been an extreme amount of uh, healthcare inequities in America's healthcare system. You know, you know going back to slavery, essentially. 
So do you think the fact that they're overrepresented in deaths is due to underlying health conditions or current lack of access to care once they do get coronavirus? Right. I mean, I, I ascribe it to both because the fact of the matter is they have these underlying conditions because they have a lack of healthcare access. So I put everything in the two buckets, really, healthcare access and healthcare outcomes. What I mean by healthcare access is do I have insurance? Do I have access to a primary care physician? Do I have transportation? I mean, we like to think that everyone has a car or a ride or can afford public transportation, and that's not always the case. So healthcare access in one bucket. The other bucket is healthcare outcomes. So because of, you know, maybe my zip code, right? The zip code is actually a determination of how long you're going to live, what your healthcare access is like, what your health outcomes are going to be. And quite frankly, it's really sad that where you're born is going to determine those things in your future. Um, but as far as healthcare outcomes, am I more likely to have these underlying conditions or chronic conditions? So when, when I mean, I, I see them really as interrelated. Um, uh, if that helps answer your question, I mean, as far as healthcare access, you know, Latinos have much higher uh, rates of, uh, of of not being insured compared to um, compared to white individuals. So, right there, I mean, just not having access to care, you know, not getting treated, not having preventative medicine um, at the first sign of an illness, um, it's going to lead to you know these these greater underlying conditions that you're going to have worse outcomes because if you're not treating things like hypertension and diabetes, right, it's, you know, your, your health is quickly deteriorating. Well, in terms of right now, what do you think the state could be doing differently to address these disparities? And what do you think could be done federally? Okay, well, first, you know, in, in terms of the state's response to COVID-19, I think the state is actually doing a really excellent job. The governor is making some really difficult decisions, and we have to realize that this is a pandemic unlike any of us have ever experienced before, so we're learning as we go as well. But, you know, one of the things that we did with the governor's administration early on is that we utilized our network of 390 community health centers to expand testing statewide. So a little bit about our health centers, we are traditionally in these underserved communities that are being hit the hardest, and and we are charged with providing care to anyone regardless of their ability to pay. And it's really fully integrated care. It's medical, behavioral health, dental, pharmacy services, um, substance use disorder treatment services uh, as well. Um, and because of that fully integrated model, we know that we save the state 27% per Medicaid patient, which is about $2 billion on an annual basis. But one other thing that we do is we connect uh, patients with other vital services that are important to their health, uh, housing, um, legal assistance, food, nutrition. I mean, all of these things impact someone's health. And so if you hear the term social determinants of health, that is what um, that is what individuals are talking about. So we know that the care of a person doesn't stop inside the four walls of a health center or inside of your doctor's office, right? When you go home, I mean, if you're not, if you don't have safe housing, um, if uh, there's a lot of crime in your neighborhood, if you don't have access to food, if you don't have access to good jobs, all of this impacts your health in in one way or another. So there really needs to be and everyone will say, oh, you just can't throw money at the problem. And, and 
in, in one way, I do agree, but there's just been a significant underinvestment in black and brown communities for far too long. And there's just been decades of inequities that, you know, have to be made up in some part by an investment in these communities and investment in the healthcare infrastructure. So if I go back, uh, and again, not to go all the way back to slavery, but if I go back to, to 1945, so 1945 was what was called the Hill-Burton Act, um, and that was kind of the Affordable Care Act of its time, where it was supposed to provide access to care for anyone, right, even if they don't have insurance, you know, regardless of their ability to pay. But it still allowed for separate but equal treatment facilities. So what ended up happening is you still had white um, healthcare facilities, and then you had black healthcare facilities. Um, and, and so one way that we've been trying to bridge the gap, and just I'm sorry, I'm just giving you a little history lesson here. So, so in 1945, you had the Hill-Burton Act. In 1964, you had the Civil Rights Act. In 1965, Congress created community health centers, right, to to actually serve anyone regardless of their ability to pay, regardless of their gender, their race, their ethnicity, their immigration status. In 1966, uh, Martin Luther King was marching in Chicago, and he spoke to a, a group in Chicago and stated that out of all of the inequities that um, that he had seen, that the inequities that existed within the American healthcare s system were the worst. Um, and so at the same time as he was marching and demonstrating in Chicago and other places throughout the country, um, the first community health centers were being built um, in the city of Chicago to address not only the health inequities, but also the social and racial inequities. So we've existed for more than 50 years now to tackle these issues. And, and what we've been telling our elected officials and our policymakers for decades is we need greater investments in these communities. And it's really unfortunate that now it's taken a pandemic to open others' eyes to see, yes, we actually need to invest more in these communities. But again, it's not a one-size-fits-all solution. It's not just invest more in healthcare. Um, you need to invest in um, you know the entire person again it's it's housing it's jobs it's it's nutrition it's the full gamut it sounds like community health centers are supposed to basically serve the kinds of people who typically lack access to health care do you know how many covid patients they're treating so I don't know how many COVID uh, patients that we're treating at our facilities. I can tell you that right now we have a, around 130 testing sites and we've tested over half a million uh, patients to date. So we are the largest network of uh, testing in the state of Illinois. How has it been coordinating with the state? Like how does the response to COVID-19 actually look on the ground? Yeah, I mean, I think it's been good, and it hasn't gone without its challenges, as I alluded to before. This is new for everyone, and I think the governor and the governor's administration is doing a really excellent job considering the circumstances. I know that we've had really positive conversations uh, with the governor and his team, and, and as I said before, that led to um, us announcing a statewide effort to continue uh, testing. Um, we also recently worked with the legislature to appropriate $190 million for community health centers. And I know that the state is really working hard to make sure that those dollars get to our, our members as soon as possible. Is it as fast as we would like? 
no, it's not. But at the same time, we understand that um, there's there's a lot that's going on. We aren't the only healthcare provider. We're not the only ones that are being impacted by COVID. And you know, the state can't just you know prioritize one thing or over another. But I know that they're working really hard. Um, we've also had conversations with. Dr. Azike and the Department of Public Health on accessing PPE for our members. We've been working really well with the Chicago Department of Public Health. So I think the lines of communication have been open. Um, not everything is going to run smoothly as you would like, but I think if you know if you just look at our numbers compared to to other states and some of our outcomes, um, I think we're doing a pretty good job. So obviously, when a person survives COVID nineteen all their problems don't just go away. We don't know what the health effects are long-term. What's the plan to deal with that? Right, and I think, um, you know, you raise a good point, right? Like, we don't know what the long-term impact is going to be. We have a lot of patients that are scared, um, that are nervous, and I think that's one thing that we really do a good job of is we're always, I mean, we're constantly in the community. We've got care coordinators and outreach team that are, following up with patients, uh, usually by telephone now and keeping in touch with them. We've actually also re, um, we've transformed our practices. So um, a health center is actually like a health system. So if you name it, if you call it a health center, they might actually have, you know, 10 to 15 sites. So they transformed some of their practices into well sites. So someone that is uh, just coming in for a primary care visit or for an immunization. So there's no, no risk there. And others that are sick clinics. So they can really um, take care of these patients that have been exposed to COVID-19 or having lingering effects from uh COVID-19. So we really, again, is, is treating the entire patient and wrapping around a lot of different services around that individual versus just focusing on the symptoms of COVID-19. I think <clears throat> moving forward, um, you know, we want to ensure that something like this never happens again, or if there is a, a another virus that comes around that we are prepared, better prepared to deal with it uh, than we were the first time around. And that means having an adequate amount of, of PPE on hand. Um, I think FQHCs have done a really good job of putting into um, into practice emergency preparedness plans, so, they, so they're already um, pretty prepared, but also educating patients on just the basics, right, which is, you know, washing your hands, you know, covering covering up when you're, when you're sneezing, and, you know, just the basic things that's going to keep somebody healthy. We've already talked about it, and you've gone into the history of disinvestment, but going forward, I mean, we can't stop a pandemic. And when you have a population that's more vulnerable because of socioeconomic conditions, what can you do to prevent disparate outcomes? So I think that, I mean, I'm really going to health equity then, right? If I'm, if I'm, I don't want to just prevent um, the pandemic from impacting a certain population. I want them already to have the best health care that's possible. And that's really what we strive to do. And health equity has to do with what I said earlier, which is access to care and health outcomes. So whether or not you have access to care and what the quality of, of that care is and how healthy you are really should not depend on your zip code or skin color. And I'm a firm believer that health care is a right and not a privilege. And, and part of health equity is ensuring that everyone can receive the treatments and the supports they need when they need them and in a way that is acceptable and 
appropriate uh, for them because high quality health care is about meeting the needs of your your patients and that's why I think community health centers, not that I think why I know community health centers are such a great model being a community community based sites that tailor their approach to the the unique and diverse needs of Illinois underserved communities so it's not just focusing on like the, the pandemic i mean if we're able to address healthcare outcomes and, and healthcare uh access and outcomes i mean we are already uh, in effect, protect, protect, protecting those populations, right? If we treat everyone equally in the American healthcare system, I think overall, and and at least you know, uh, controlling a pandemic like this in the future is you know better communication, you know, communication between uh, healthcare providers, communication between the federal government and and state governments. Um, you know, leadership is really important in in a pandemic like this. So I'm sure at at some point, maybe we can all take a step back and take a breath and like, okay, how do we, how do we make sure that it doesn't get to this level again? I think a lot of us though are trying to just, you know, get our arms wrapped around, um, you know, tackling COVID, right? That's, that's the immediate thing. That's the immediate action that needs to be, um, needs to be handled. And then we can take a look at, um, you know, making sure that we at least have the processes and, and controls in place that if we're ever faced with a virus like this again, that we're, we're better prepared. Is it a matter of investment? Is it a matter of policy? What's it going to take to achieve health equity? Right. So, I mean, that's, that's a really, really great question. Of course, I don't have all the, all the answers, but I think going back to one of my previous answers is health equity is more than just, investing more in healthcare. It's investing in people's lives, right? It's investing in communities because things like housing, if you don't have safe housing, if maybe you have public housing and the public housing has has mold, right? That's not good for your health. Um, if you're born in a high crime area, obviously that's not good for your health. If you don't have access to healthy foods, that's going to impact your health. So again, it's not just investing um, piecemeal. It's it's investing entirely in people and communities. And is it going to take a lot of money? Yes, absolutely. It's going to take a lot of money, but we think of it as an investment and in driving down these downstream healthcare costs uh, that uh, you know, everyone likes to talk about healthcare getting the, the cost just getting astronomically high, and that's true. But if we invest in people from the beginning, invest in people and communities from the very beginning, we're going to keep these people healthier longer, which in turn is going to drive down healthcare costs. So for me, it's about investing entirely in communities and people and not just piecemeal. I think in the state of Illinois, that's been difficult, right? Because there's not been, uh, the, the budget situation hasn't been that good. And so we all seem to be fighting over a small amount of resources when really, in reality, we should be working together um, and, and, and sharing the resources as best as possible because together, then we're really going to achieve this equity for people that involves so many um, different industries. Is Illinois on the right path to equity? Do you think the state should be doing things differently? I'm not sure. I mean, I think the governor, he's really, um, he has a progressive agenda and has been successful. So I think that we're 
on the right track. I think the uh, what's hindered the progress um, that we would all like to see is just the the reality of our budget situation, right? There's not enough money to invest in all these different things. It's going to take time. And now COVID-19 has really impacted the state budget. So I don't know what the future looks like for continuing to invest in those things. Um, thankfully, the, the state of Illinois received I believe it was $3.5 billion in CARES Act funding from Congress, and that's how the $190 million was allocated for FQHCs. I know there was money for hospitals and nursing homes, but there was also uh, funding for things like affordable housing. I mean, that's been a really big uh, push for some members of the Illinois General Assembly, and I think, I mean, that's something that we absolutely uh, support as well. Illinois received around $4.9 billion in federal CARES Act funding. The state government got around $3.5 billion of that funding, with $1.4 billion going to local governments. We would like to thank IPHCA President Jordan Powell for speaking to us, and you, the listener, for tuning in. You have been listening to Perspectives on Progress, a special edition of Capital Cast. You can find more episodes wherever you listen to podcasts or on our website, capitalnewsillinois.com. Capital News Illinois is a statehouse reporting project of the Illinois Press Foundation. Our theme music is provided by Kevin McLeod. This is Raymond Troncoso. Stay safe. Stay safe.